This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Equity Bates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity mate. Ren, how's it going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. I think uh, the best part about doing this podcast is uh, speaking to fund managers and learning about fund managers we wouldn't otherwise uh, know about. Yep. And uh, this interview's going to be a good one. Uh, fund manager who's had an incredible couple of years and is also our age. So, <laughs> what are we doing with what, our lives? What the? <laughs> <laughs> it's our absolute pleasure to welcome uh, Michael Frazes to the show. Michael, welcome. Hey guys, thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me on. So, uh, for those who are unaware, Michael is the portfolio manager at uh, Frazes Capital Partners, a fund focused on investing in companies with true customer love and explosive growth. We'll unpack that in a second. Michael's fund had an incredible 2020 returning over 100% despite the tumultuous year in markets. So, Michael, what a year. Uh, it, was, it was a wild year, wasn't it? <laughs> so many twists and turns. Actually, yeah. the last two years, it probably started in mid-2018. Um, there was that big, you know, rates were rising, that yeah. big 20, 30% sell-off. Um, and there was just turbulence ever since. Mm. So mm. many twists and turns, changes in monetary policy, you know, big rallies, big sell-offs. Mm. And I guess the coronavirus was kind of like the peak of that, yeah. you know, that huge sell-off yeah. and then subsequent rally. Yeah. Well, not, not only have you, uh, did you deliver over 100% last year, uh, but you were telling us before that you're up, what, 30% year to date. Uh, something like that, but it's kind of like a mid-month number. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Good turn of Call it. it. <laughs> we did 12 in January. Uh, we've done something similar this yeah. month so far. Well, we'll get into all of that, but before we do, we do like to start with a bit of a game just to talk about, throw out some topics that we may not otherwise get to in the interview. Sure. Uh, so we call it overrated or underrated. Um, and we'll start with uh, our major index at home, uh, ASX 200, overrated or underrated? Ooh, I would say overrated because basically that's how, where everybody puts their money and most of those companies are very slow growers and, and relatively low return. Mm. 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 Then overrated or underrated the NASDAQ 100? Oh, that's a good one because it uh, rallied so hard. So half the NASDAQ is basically those big tech companies like yeah. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google. They're probably actually quite cheap. Um, whereas like the kind of other parts of the market like software that are more expensive. Uh, I think of all the places to put your money, the NASDAQ has got to be one of the better ones. Yeah. You know, those companies are growing at 15 to 20% and will into the future. And the other interesting thing about the NASDAQ is all, all the new challenges will come up through there. So if something pips Microsoft or pips Facebook and Google and Amazon, it'll probably come up through the NASDAQ. Mm. Um, and that means that, you know, you'll kind of get the benefit of that. Yeah, yeah. And that's why indices are so good. You know, the companies that disrupt come up through the indices. And as one company's going down, another one will be rising. Yeah. Um, but overall, you know, more and more money's going to flow that way. And those companies going to take more and more market share out of the rest of the world. It's getting it before it gets into the NASDAQ, though. That's <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, that's <laughs> how you make the real money. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We focus, most of our companies, I think our median's about $10 billion, but we go a lot lower than that in terms of market cap. Um, so most of our companies have, we have very, very little overlap with the NASDAQ, yeah. even though we invest in tech. Yeah. Nice. Uh, overrated or underrated Wall Street bets? Ooh, interesting. I would say it was very much underrated because there were some smart people on that thing and some great posts. Then there was that moment where like everybody around the world was talking about it. It was like that that that, pe that first peak in crypto like mm. two years ago. Where it literally got to the point where literally everybody was talking about it and that was the top. Um, and sadly, a lot of people got sucked in then. 
Yeah. You know, those, those short squeezes always end the same way. And they always end, there's basically a forced buyer. And everybody pushes up the price, um, either wittingly or unwittingly, until that forced buyer sell. Um, so, so buys. So everybody knows that person's coming. Once they come, once they buy, that's it. Yeah. There's literally no reason to own the stock. Uh, then it's just a case of selling as soon as you can. Um, and that is the dynamic that happens in every single short squeeze in the past and will happen every single short squeeze in the future. So it's kind of sad. Like it was, you guys will know it was one of the most funniest weeks in finance. Like yeah. The memes that were going around were hilarious. Yeah. The whole thing was just great. You know, all the famous people got involved. Um, but there was, there was always going to have this sad ending with us. Those people that got sucked in were going to lose their money. So Did you get involved in the... Uh I got involved as a spectator. So I was okay. watching closely. And I actually wrote something about it. I was like, short squeezes always end the same way. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't trying to... I was, to the extent that I could, I was trying to warn like the handful of people that read my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't end well. Yeah. I think my uh, I've got a little brother. I think he bought right at the top. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, no. Eight hundred bucks at like. <laughs> Overrated or underrated Australian property? Ooh. Residential. Uh, I would say it's a tough one. I'd say Sydney's generally underrated. I mean, Sydney's small. Like, if you want to live in the flagship suburb. Um, or even like kind of an inner city suburb, there's not that much, you know, su such limited supply and such a fast growing city. So, you know, it's it's pretty, I think people throughout our lives certainly put most of their wealth in, in real estate and it's going to be competitive. If you want something good, you're going to have to pay up in this place. Yeah. Mm. And then uh, last but not least, uh, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Uh, that's an interesting one after the rally. I would have said very underrated before. Now it's, I don't really want to be kind of getting people into the top. Yeah. <laughs> um, but do, you, broadly, do you think this is a top? Uh, not a long-term top, no. I mean, one of, the, one of the benchmarks that I've been using to see is does crypto make sense? And there's a few of them, but one of them would be how does it, the, the crypto market cap, whatever that means, you know, the value of all Bitcoin, mm. how does that compare to say a big tech company? Yeah. And, you know, a few months ago that was two or 300. So it, be, it wasn't even like a big company. It's like mm. a tenth the size of Apple. If you think of something that, you know, is globally relevant that a lot of people want to own. And there's some aspects of it, you know, like our generation will buy a stock or a crypto if there's a funny meme about it. Yeah. <laughs> like we have proven that as a generation again yeah. and again and again. <laughs> yeah. um, so there is that element. But, you know, the crypto has real use cases. So if you're, you don't need to worry about it in Australia, but if you're in, you know, some random country that's unstable political um, environment where people, yeah, if you create a lot of wealth that could be taken from you at any moment, um, it does make sense to have some of this stuff in that. It's also got a use case in crime. Again, not that we're supporting crime, but you know, as observers, we can like say, look, there's people that actually need it for that. Yeah. Um, there's a host of reasons that people will use it. Um, even if you don't like those reasons, that's the reality. So there'll always be that demand for this coin. And if people are going to try and put money in this stuff, it will have some value. Mm. Um, now, yeah. we should clarify that Equity Mates officially does not support crime. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it is a fascinating thing to watch. Um, so as we move, uh, through this interview, uh, before we talk about what you're doing at Fraser's Capital Partners, we'd love to, uh, get to know you a little bit. And we like to hear the story of people's first investments. We mm. generally find there's a good lesson or a good story that comes out of it. So can you tell us the story of your first investment? Uh, I haven't thought about that in so long. I think I was, I think it was a company called Kimberly Diamond, just some random commodity stock. Okay. And then it dropped 30. It's like diamonds. It's like the people's first stock is often a gold company. Yeah, they just feel like yeah. they think it's some... We asked this and it's often a miner or a mining explorer or yeah. something in resources. Yeah. But then it dropped a lot and then the management sold out to another company at a, at a loss for, 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 for a lot of shareholders. And that was kind of interesting because I spent a lot of time in private equity and then often that's a trap in these small cap companies. Like I think uh, a lot of people... When they start investing, they'll start going, okay, I need to find like some undiscovered company that nobody knows. 
And that's generally a poor way to go. Like often there'd be a 20, 30, 40% shareholder there that has a plan to effectively take the company, mm. um, to buy it out really cheap or to sell it to some related entity. You know, it's really hard to know what's actually going on in these companies. And the smaller companies are often very fragile as well. Like the shifting winds of, of global you know, economics can easily just wipe out a series of companies. Whereas the more globally significant ones, you know, generally have a lot more staying power. Yeah, but it's, it's funny how everybody goes through the same journey. You know, we all read the, this, more or less the same books, have the same idea of buying a dollar fifty cents. <laughs> but then that's just not what's worked in the last 10, 20 yeah. years, you know? Like the companies that do really well are the ones that are spending and actually losing money. Mm. You know, they've been the best performers. Yeah, we will get to that because uh, I think that's a really interesting uh, um, mindset, I guess, or approach that you have. Um, before we do, though... Uh, you mentioned you're in private equity. Uh, what was your journey from making that first investment to starting Fraser's Capital? Uh, I think I was one of those weird kids that always knew what he what he wanted to do. So I always wanted to do what I'm doing now. Um, so that's probably when I was 17, 18. Now I'm kind of 32, so it's, I guess, 14, 15 years. Um, private equity, well, my background was actually chemistry. So I went to England and studied chemistry there, undergrad and kind of postgrad. Uh, decided the lab wasn't really for me, like kind of doing similar things every, every day. At the, time, at the time, there wasn't that much commercialization going on in that university. Now there is. I think if, if I was there now, it would have been a completely different story. And I think if the coronavirus happened when I was studying science, my whole career would have been different. Mm. Like it, was, it became so cool to become medical science at the moment, you know, and all the money's going there. It's extremely well funded, both from the business side of things and also the government side of things. There's all this support. You know, I think uh, it's really interesting that you know, your whole life decision, like path might have been different. Um, but yeah, then I just wanted to work in finance because it seemed fun, exciting, dynamic. Basically got the only job that somebody would give me. <laughs> 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 did that for five years. But it was always, you know, again, we did so much work. Like private equity, you work so hard and you do so much work and so much analysis. And that entire time, you know, those tech companies were just grinding up. Mm. You know, they dramatically outperformed everything we did, basically. Um, and, and that was the lesson, I think. Mm. That was that was what I noticed. So, Michael, do you have a an investing philosophy that kind of drives what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, we've got like a catchphrase, which is like we invest in companies with true love and explosive growth. And you kind of uh, you kind of need both those things. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> no, no, no. We get it. Yeah. Move on. <laughs> so the true love and explosive growth. So you need both. If you think if, if you think people really like something, you need to be able to see it in the numbers. Likewise, if something's growing really fast, there's probably something going on. Not always, but probably. Um, so I think in investing, a lot of people try and figure out what's going to happen next and what's going to work. We found it far more productive to figure out what's working really well now. Um, what can we prove with data that's actually, that's actually something interesting is going on? Like if a company's growing at 10, 15%, which is like where most people kind of invest, you know, it's probably not changing the world. It's roughly the same size now as it was last year. If a company's got twice as many users now as it did last year, it might actually be changing the world. You know, there might be something going on. And then you can see there's so many examples of this, you know, whether it's Afterpay, you know, doubling five years in a row, um, or a host of different uh, US tech companies. Um, we found a really good guide. I mean, there's two probably, the two interesting stories that your, readers will, your listeners will be familiar with is probably Apple and Tesla. So rewind to kind of 2009, 2010, when Apple launched their first iPhone. Um, back then, there was a host of competition. So investing, everyone always think about competitive analysis and, you know, you can write books on, on a current competitive situation of anything. So think what faced Apple then. They had Microsoft, BlackBerry, and Nokia. It's kind of like incumbents, particularly Nokia and BlackBerry. And then you had Samsung, Sony, you know, a host of new Asian entrants, HTC, companies that you, you barely remember now. 
all extremely well resourced or raising a ton of money or ready to go for it. In many cases, you know, offering phones with better features. You know, but there's only one company that people would pitch tents outside three days before to get their hands on the first one of, you know, 10,000 iPhones. You know, it was ridiculous in hindsight, but it was one of those cultural phenomena. You know, people loved that company and they really supported it. And, you know, fast forward 10 years. So think about how difficult it was to pick who was going to win there. Fast forward 10 years and, you know, Apple charged a few hundred dollars more for every iPhone. There were years where they captured the entire profit margin of the industry. Um, they created $2 trillion of value, became the most valuable listed company. So using that true love, explosive growth got you the right answer to a really difficult question. Like, how do you analyze this extremely complicated, you know, market with like 10 plus different actors? Um, Tesla was similar. So we first bought Tesla, I think, uh, if you adjust for equity splits, about 16 bucks before the actual fund that I'm in now, that I run now. But again, it was a similar dynamic. You know, you've got all these car companies uh, struggling to sell cars, competing on price and features. Then you've got one car company that gets hundreds of thousands of pre-orders with a presentation. Yeah, that's true love. And then what happened? You know, they went up, increased production from 2,000 cars to 500,000 cars. You know, it went up, what, what's that, 50 times or something, 25 times. Mm. Uh, you can check the numbers after. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, before we jump into a bit more about what you're doing at, uh, at your fund, we'll just uh, take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So, uh, obviously, pretty phenomenal year in 2020 for Fraser's Capital Partners. Some phenomenal growth. Uh, since launch in 2016, you've returned 31% a year or thereabouts? Uh, I think we're over 40 now. Wow. That's an old number. Wow. After fees and things. So, do you attribute all of this to just finding companies with true love and explosive growth? Yeah, basically. I mean, we're, we're actually pretty diversified. So we have 40 to 50 stocks, maybe a little bit not more now. Um, so we don't have very large positions. It's really fashionable in tech investing at the moment to have like big positions, mm. you know, maybe four or five of your best ideas. Mm. Uh, but I think if you can get, it's kind of like a challenge. Like if you can get four or five, you should be able to get 40 or 50, you know, or can't you? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Or you're just getting lucky once or twice out of four stocks, you know, which is basically what, what, what can happen. Um, I think what there's a couple of things we do. So we push the growth like way far, further than anyone else. You think about computer gaming, you know, StarCraft, those games. You know, the people, the winning strategies are generally at the extremes. 
So we've got all your different ways that you can play these games, but generally the optimal strategy is actually to push, you know, just create one type of unit, the most efficient unit, and then focus on that and then like swarm the enemy. You know, I think like investing can be a bit like that. And I, I, don't, I, don't think I haven't really heard anybody else talk about it like this. But, you know, there's a million different factors and you could weigh them all differently. And people are not systematic about the way they do that. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of thought that goes into it. You know, if you're buying a stock because it's cheap at P of eight, why aren't you buying a stock that's cheap at a P of six? Because heaps of them. Why not? You know, there's mm. and no no fund manager can really answer that question because there there is no answer. You know, they're just taking into account a, a, a million different factors um, that aren't systematic and generally result in pretty weak returns. I mm. think. But if we think if we want to get like these fast growing companies that people really love with like lots of evidence behind that, you know, web stats, reviews, uh, huge traction in the market, everyone talking about them, and we want the ones that are growing as fast as possible. So our, most of our companies, we, we usually won't buy something unless it's growing at over 100%. Um, and that's kind of the basis of the returns. So the companies are 5 to 6% bigger every single month. Um, so you kind of get just, paid to wait. It's just crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was the other thing that mattered? I, th I think last year there were two things that mattered. And it's interesting that they mattered then because they mattered every year before. So yeah, the things that drove you to, to performance was how much do you have in these fast-growing tech companies or tech companies? And then did you stay steady in March or did you panic? Um, or did you change your exposures? Or you short a few stocks? You know, those were the two things. The trick were in 2020, with the benefit of hindsight, um, was to stay along and have and the more te tech you had, the better you did. Yeah. The more ap afterpay you did, the funds that had afterpay <laughs> Australia, zero, did really well. You know, the funds, the, the, the lesson, you can actually zoom out for the last 10 years and it's the same thing. Mm. You know, did you panic in 2016? Did you panic in the Euro crisis? Um, and how much of those tech companies did you own? And so that was a, the case in the past and I'm pretty sure it'll be the case going forward as well. Well, speaking of going forward, I'm, I feel like there would be a lot of listeners listening to the companies you're talking about and asking the obvious question, which is all of these companies are quite expensive based on traditional valuation metrics at the moment. Um, at some point, the music's got to stop, the tide's got to come in and you know uh, the record bull run we're seeing uh, has got to slow down. Uh, how do you think about investing in those times with this strategy? Uh, there's a few things there. So the same thing that we used to get the right answer in March 2020, um, which is basically stay invested, is the same thing we're using now, which is obviously giving us a really good start to the year and actually made us finish really strongly last year. If you think, let's say I've got 30 to 40 years, hopefully, you know, if health holds up, you know, investing in the market. And so what is the optimal strategy for that? You know, what is, in March, we weren't thinking, okay, there's a big crash. What do we think? Let's, let's weigh up a million factors and come to a decision. It was like, right. Every time the market drops 20, 30, 40%, what are we going to do? And that's a much easier question to answer because I'm sure we can all agree that the answer is just to hold and write it out mm. over the next 30, 40 Buy years more. again and again. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so let's, uh, that's, that's, that's when things are going down. Now, when things are going up, like now, what's the right answer? You know, it's the same. It's the same answer. If you want to do this for 30 or 40 years, particularly if you've got companies going at 5 6% a month, the answer is to hold. Um, and just compound that. And there'll be times when you run ahead of things, things run ahead of themselves, like now, you kind of look smarter than you are. And there'll be times like March where you look really stupid, you know, and, and nothing's working. Like now it's like one of those moments where everything's working. There'll be times when nothing's working. But you know, over that period, you know, these companies will grow. The lows will be higher. There'll be higher highs and higher lows. Um, and the and your long-term performance will depend on how, how far your companies have come. So then for you, uh, in terms of selling, would it just be if customers fall out of love with a product or they stop growing at those incredible rates? Yeah. So we look at, we track the organic growth rate of our portfolio 
closely. And every time we make a change, we assess how that changes that. You know, and sometimes it, it's been, I'll give you two examples of when we did it. So we actually sold out of, we don't own any of the big tech now. It's almost like a strategy thing. Like if you run a fund, there's no point owning it. You know, people can buy it for free. Um, there's just no, you're just going to overlap 50% with every other fund. It's boring. It's, it's not exciting. You're not doing anything. You're not adding value in any way. So we don't own any of those companies, no Alibaba, no major tech companies anywhere. Um, I've completely forgotten where I was going with this. Uh, I, was, I was asking about selling. <laughs> ah, yes. So he sold Apple. So I just, I just wanted to clarify that we don't own any of those. <laughs> Noted. But this, <laughs> so in 2018, I think it's 2018, we're like, okay, the smartphone market is saturated like yeah people will upgrade their phones every now and then but it wasn't like before where a handful of people in san francisco like had iphones and it was just so obvious they're just going to roll them out of the entire planet um and revenues are up a little bit but basically flat uh since then and the stock has tripled <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so 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 and then, then another one happened with zero so zero's growth dropped like when we were buying it was kind of 40 50 percent then it kind of dropped to 20 30 percent we sold out of that and again it rallied i think what's happening is often these companies as they're maturing, they're starting to throw off a huge amount of free cash flow. And that's when all the other professionals are coming in. And that's when we're kind of selling. Okay. Because the growth has slowed down. Like we want that bit. The perfect company for us is one that's actually looks like it's losing money. It's actually creating a lot of value. Mm-hmm. And that's like a weird paradox in markets right now. Well, yeah, you, you wrote about that in your 2020 update. Um, and you spoke about how sometimes the companies that are losing money, but actually losing more money every year, uh, for most investors, it may look like a red flag, but for you, it may actually be a good thing. So can you, can you just explain that? Yeah, so it's actually quite, um, quite deep. So it's a bit technical as well. So if you think about, you know the phrase EBITDA that people are quite familiar with. Yeah. So if you read like the early investing books, none of them use that phrase. It wasn't around then. It's actually like kind of 20, 30 years old, or maybe the 80s, whenever that was. It's increasingly more like 40 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah, more than 40, yeah, 40, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it was just the idea was you, you take your earnings before interest tax, but you basically take your earnings before you make the capital spending decisions. How much you spend on interest, how much you depreciate your assets, and give you get an idea of the underlying profitability of the business. Now this is just makes a world of sense to everybody, and it became widespread because it was such a good. It just just simplified a lot of things. Um, the problem you've got now is is and it's not a problem. It's just it's just the way things are. Is that the best companies in the world now are spending above the EBITDA line. So EBITDA is kind of like after you spend money on salaries, R&D, marketing, after that. Um, whereas the best companies in the world are hiring brilliant staff, they're opening new offices, um, they're spending a lot of R&D, so they're getting dinged for that. And so almost every professional investor will describe themselves as a value investor. They want free cash flow, they want earnings, but those things, if you, if you spend on marketing, if you hire a brilliant computer science, if you open a new office for your software company in a new country, and all of a sudden 100 million people can now use your software at zero marginal cost, they will penalize you for that. Mm. Isn't that insane? Yeah. It's a, so if you screen on, on, on cash flow or EBITDA, which we've been doing for so long, you're going to get the wrong answer to all those, all those questions. And it's not even the wrong answer. You're going to get the opposite answer. So you're going to see the best software companies in the world, and you're going to think they're sales. You know, or the companies that can actually open a new office, spend some money, and then 5x, you know, their sales. And you'll think that company's a sell. You know, like, and there's so many examples. like Tesla, Afterpay. Like, they're the ones people know. But you could go, you can generalize it to the entire software space. And you can generalize it again to the entire fast-growing technology space. And so if you're a business owner, it is, this stuff is mind-numbingly obvious. You know, it's like, you can't meet your demand. You can't hire enough. There's, there's revenue dollars coming in. You're going to spend those revenue dollars. And the best ones spell basically match their spending and their revenues. And so no earnings, no cash flow. You know, it's, 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 it's so obvious that you should spend that money and get that next leg up of growth. Um, 
but the traditional approach of investing, the value investing, the free cash flow, all that stuff, will miss every single one of those companies and get them the wrong way around. Yeah. And so Tesla, Afterpay, like software, these were the most shorter companies in the world. You know, we had a company, Carvana, what, 36 bucks. Short interest was 70% of the free float. You know, it's, they're basically, like, it, was, it was completely tied up. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was betting against this. All the investment bankers were short. You know, there were short reports flying out left, right and center. It was a screaming buy. You know, it's gone up like eight, nine times since. Wow. You know, so it's not that, it's not just that these companies, or Tesla, think about the debate over Tesla or Afterpay. Now, now, fast forward now, we can actually look back, you know, like as, as you know, as observers and go, what, what happened there? It's like, there was a huge debate and then the stocks didn't just perform well. They didn't just nice. muddle along. <laughs> that was the best performance <laughs> in the market, yeah. you know. So how did the professional community get it, not just wrong, but the reverse? You know, why, how are they buy sells? And these, these are smart people. I'm not saying they're, they're, not, they're not smart or they don't, they don't, there's not reasons for them thinking that way because they are. But I can tell you, like, you can derive from first principles the same way they did with EBITDA, that any fast-growing company will be investing above the free cash flow line. They'll generally be investing by hiring staff. So there'll be no balance sheet assets either. So you can't screen for balance yeah. sheet. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something really profound going on in markets. It's great news for us because very few people are doing this. So then you, you can't look at the balance sheet. You can't look at met- traditional metrics like profit after tax, EBIT, EBITDA, free cash flow. So I guess the question then becomes, what are the metrics that you look to? Yeah, look, there's, you can definitely, you, you can 100% use the same value methods. You just have to think about it a bit differently. So an example is, um, and there's a couple of lessons in this stock, would be zero that everybody knows because we're in Australia. And so if you think about what is the value of, of a customer that comes on zero and pays $30 a month, you know, it's software, the odds of serving an extra customer is basically zero. Um, that customer is worth a lot, like $30 a month into the future, how many, you know, 360 a year. If they grow their business, they'll pay more. Now, what is the impact on the company's financials? This is getting technical, so I hope it's not too dumb. No, 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 this is good. It's interesting. Yeah. What is, what is the impact on the financials? Well, they would have spent some money to get that customer. You'll just see a marketing expense. What we see on the balance sheet? Nothing. You know, there's no line that says um, customer value. But we all will sit here and agree that that customer is worth something. And so this is like, I'm talking about kind of five years ago, not many people realize this. I kind of like figured out with zero, like zero is pretty good at like explaining that. Again, it's something the investment community didn't get, but all the actual business people, people actually doing real stuff, the entrepreneurs, they just, you just intrinsically get it because it's so obvious on that side um, that you should be spending to get new customers that are going to pay you 30 bucks a month forever. Um, the mistake I made is I should have just generalized it. I've, if I asked, all I had to do was ask myself one question. It's like, what other companies are there in the world like this? And it led you straight to software in like the US when they're trading at five, six times sales. And you think about it, these, these, these are basically 90% gross margin businesses, some more, some less. Um, that, that, that sales multiple, it's basically a profit multiple almost. And so six times was insanely cheap and they're all going super fast then and the world was open. Uh, so I do somewhat regret that. And that's actually shaped why we hold so many stocks. Mm. So you mentioned uh, the market or the professionals got afterpay wrong, Tesla wrong, and uh, they became the best performing stocks. What in your universe at the moment do you think the market or the professionals are getting wrong? Ooh, tough one. Um, look, obviously, one thing I'll caveat on that is like there's always two people to every market. I'd say that the professionals got it wrong because the professionals were, net, were shorting. Like yeah. Retail doesn't short. Yeah. It's actually retail buying. Um, and I will answer a question, but I just want to make one interesting observation was that's what happened in March. So in March, the investors all hit the sell button because you actually track the flows from investors versus retail. And it was mass investor selling. And it was like in Australia, it was like Magellan. You know, in the US, it was like more Buffett. Like the top guys in the industry were like just hitting the sell button, you know, talking this big value by dip. 
And then, you know, the dip came and just hit sell. <laughs> and the glorious thing was like retail bought. Yeah, like it was yeah. like, I, like my brother, I'm pretty sure my brothers bought their first stocks in, yeah, that, yeah. in that period, you know? And, and that was like a microcosm of like what was going on all around the world. Anyway, what was the question that I used to answer? <laughs> What's, what stocks are in your universe at the moment that you think, um, you know, the professionals are getting wrong? Um, look, there's a few heavily shorted things in the United States, but I think now is, it's just a weird moment now because everything has gone up. So it's very hard to find something that people are universally against. Mm. I think, uh, the fast growing companies that I invest in have kind of, everyone's now publishing academic research saying, um, that, you know, that the, it's, it's fast growing companies that drive the most returns, you know, but I think it might just be a, a thing that the market we're in. I think where we're finding most of our stuff is actually, is actually in kind of, life sciences so about 30 percent of what we do is in healthcare to some degree mm -hmm. it's like digital health um a handful of drug companies companies synthesizing dna companies creating tools medical devices there's a you can find companies like that that are growing exceptionally fast at you know five six times sales um, and get the uplift on both sides but i'd say it's more it's not that professionals getting wrong i just think most people don't look in that space because it is very technical and when people when people kind of do dabble in that space, they generally dabble in the wrong places. Mm. You know, they'll just be drawn to the one that's the best promoter. You know, those people, and they're, they're, they're kind of traps. So I'd really recommend people like kind of stay away from the life sciences unless you really have some idea of what you're doing because it's a very tough one and you'll probably get sucked into the one with the best story and that will almost certainly be the one that doesn't have any substance to it. Mm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Well, uh, Michael, we do want to ask you, even though you've said we should stay away from life sciences, we do want to ask you a couple of questions about that industry. But before we do, we're just going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. So, Michael, at the start of the interview, you said you, uh, you studied uh, over in England and I think you were being a little bit modest. You have a master's of chemistry from Oxford. Um, so Is there anything it, this guy can't oh, do? <laughs> Very flattering. Um, and I think you said you just took a job wherever you could get one, but I'm pretty sure that was at Goldman Sachs, wasn't it? Uh, I did an internship there. Oh. Yeah, I was being a bit, I was being a bit facetious. Uh, yeah, I had a couple. I could have worked in a, I could have worked in an investment bank, um, or I could have worked uh, in a small private equity firm. And then for better or worse, I chose a small private equity firm. There you go. Well, you've made it, yeah. it's taken you here and I don't think you can complain about where you are or what uh, you're doing. Well, I think, you have to, I think you have to do different things if you want to do different, get different outcomes. Mm. You know, I, in hindsight, I wouldn't, wouldn't have worked in the investment bank. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, but on life sciences, uh, you said that uh, retail investors or people who don't have specialized knowledge should uh, be careful or stay away. Um, given you have specialized knowledge, we're just going to grill you about it anyway. <laughs> so it feels like uh, the 2020s is shaping up to be a particular decade for life sciences, you know, sequencing of the genome, personalized medicine, new cancer treatments, uh, new vaccine methods, all that stuff. It seems like there's a lot going on in that space. So starting at a high level, how do you approach the industry and how do you decide what signal, like what's actually breakthrough and what's just noise and hype? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're right, the life science is super exciting at the moment. Um, there's been a few breakthroughs recently that have been a long time coming. Uh, so one of those was actually Moderna. So I was kind of aware of Moderna because I met one of the, I think it was the third or fourth employee, but like kind of the chief scientific officer right at the start. Now this guy had um, he set up a company called, or he was a similar role at a company called Al Nylum. It's worth $5 billion. He sold another company for like $4 billion, And he was one of the first people at Moderna, which is now worth tens of billions. Mm. And actually, he was going to Oxford to set up a new company, which is how I met him. 
And then I was like, running, I was like, this guy's got like, what, five billion, three, five billion companies. <laughs> and he's setting up a new one. It's like, you obviously have to back this, you know, whole platform technology, same thing. And I went around Australia, I just couldn't find anybody that was interested in it. Like I didn't have a dollar in my name at the time either. So it's not like I could have done it. But I was like, really, like I really tried. Anyway, so I was aware of Moderna long before this happened. And then this was kind of, last year was probably Moderna's year. Because the way, what Moderna did is they are, uh, it's probably, oh, not Moderna, like it was probably, last year was the year that I think biology really became a data science. And by that I mean, the Chinese scientists decoded the coronavirus um, genome, the DNA. They put that in a text file. That then got sent around the world through the internet. Moderna downloaded that text file and then created their vaccine from the data, mm -hmm. like without having any access to the actual virus. Wow. And that is the vaccine that is now being uh basically administered everywhere except Australia. <laughs> for some reason, somebody made the decision they weren't going to buy the best one. <laughs> Let's look at the ones with side effects. And that's a joke. <laughs> um, but that's profound. I mean, Moderna, the idea is basically you can use the DNA of a virus. I'm really simplifying it. DNA of a virus and create, create a vaccine from that data. Um, and Moderna had like a, a pretty big pipeline, but it's very slow going. Like vaccines are tough because the safety stuff is so strict. If you've got somebody that with like a terminally terminal disease that might have three to six months left, you know, you can actually be quite experimental with treatments and you're ethically justified and it makes sense um, that people in that situation who want to try certain things can do it. There's a much lower bar on safety. Um, something like a vaccine where you're giving it to everybody, it has to be so safe because if it's one in a million people die, that's not good enough. Yeah. You know, that'd be 20 people die in Australia or something. Yeah. If you cannot have it, it has to be so strict. Um, and then people, it's, it's not something that... You know, again, if somebody's terminally ill or you've got a child that you want to cure them, it's, you're very justified in spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a treatment, if not much more. Whereas for a vaccine that people might get, it's very hard to spend more than $20, $30, $40. You know? uh, so it's very hard to develop vaccines. Um, and Moderna was making very slow progress at this, this new form of, of DNA. I think that the leading one was for CMV, which is type of herpes. Um, unsure if they've got anywhere with that one. <laughs> uh, but now they've proven that it works and they proved it in fine form by doing it with, um, for, for, a, for a globally significant illness. And so now they should be able, in theory, just roll out vaccine after vaccine. You know, they think there's a way they can do it for cancer. I'm not sure about that. I think the, the data's not quite there yet. Um, but they should be able to constantly replenish their pipeline of new conditions. Uh, and they'll also be able to quickly adjust their vaccines if, you know, if coronavirus mutates in a way that's um, really harmful. Uh, so that's, I think you're looking for things in life sciences. You kind of want platform companies. You want companies that can regenerate their pipeline and throw off new candidate after new candidate after new candidate. It takes off the risk. Um, a lot of the stuff that we invest in is actually, you know, is very similar to what we invest in normally. Um, you know, they're selling something and it's growing really fast. Uh, and, and you can, I think actually, you, need, you just need to zoom in on the key decision makers. So in all kind of business, there's a decision point where you choose one thing over another. It might be one restaurant over another restaurant or listen to one podcast instead of another mm. or, you know, or buy one stock over another or click pay, Afterpay or PayPal or Zip at the end. Mm. There's always one moment where you're making a decision and you need to zoom in on that moment to see where the value is going to go. Uh, and in, in life sciences, it's actually the doctors. And so there's so many trips for the unwary. For example... Uh, what's a good example? For example, doctors might be compensated in a certain way. They might be getting paid. The specialists in a, in a field might get paid to do a certain type of surgery. So if you come up and say, here's a $50 test, they might not like that. You know, they might actually push against that, mm. even if it works. And that's like a dynamic you'll only get if you understand, if you speak to those people. 
Um, I mean, that's that's quite a cynical example, but there are examples of that happening, you know, around the world. Uh, so it's just, there's so many trips to the unwary. The problem with life science actually investing is most people get the information from the company and the company will give you a pretty uh, a pretty warped view of of kind of the landscape. And the other thing that gets retail people in, which is why I was warning, is they all have huge markets. Um, so if you cure basically any disease, you're going to make a ton of money. Um, but there's it's so much more complicated than that. You know, you have to... You have to. There might be twenty companies going for that disease. You know, the, the odds of any of them solving it are low, but often two or three do it, and only one of them is going to win the market. So, if twenty companies are valued as they've all got like a fifty percent chance of winning, like there will be net value destruction. Yeah. And so, an example of that would be something like I'd say CRISPR is pretty hot right now, and gene therapy. Um, and we've invested in some of those companies. Uh, I don't think they've done particularly well. Like one tripled and then dropped, and I think if we held, we've done okay, but. They're all going for the same things. They're all going for um, beta thalassemia, uh, sickle cell disease, a handful of leukemias because they're all blood diseases. They're easy to treat. There's probably 20 companies going for them, all with like pretty significant market caps. So I don't know how that plays out, but I do know on average they on average they have to lose value, and that's good. Like this is what we want. You want these companies to have be able to raise money and to, to develop things. You know, people talk about there's always this idea that when markets run hot, it's bad. Usually it's good. That's when people raise money and do things and build things. Mm. You know, that's generally a good thing. And it's definitely a good thing in the life sciences. But there's just so many traps. Speaking of traps, for those that of us uh, retail investors that don't have an Oxford degree, how, uh, how, should, or how would you suggest that we approach investing in this space? Uh, in that space, I would focus on companies with visible traps. I would, the same way we do it, is we kind of look for things with traction that are working. You know, that is probably the best bit of advice I could give. What about uh, like biotech ETFs and stuff like that? Do you think that's just a, given that you were talking, you know, how you're saying there's a value destruction in a lot of uh, these industries because a lot of these companies aren't successful with their treatments or their vaccines or whatever, would you say ETFs and just buying an index of biotechs is a good way to go or would you avoid that? Um, It's a tough one because it probably depends on what else you're doing. But biotech ETF will probably be heavily weighted towards the bigger biotechs yeah. that already have a series of treatments and are probably throwing off cash. Um, it'll be kind of a little bit like the NASDAQ ETF example, whereas if any of those companies does really well as tracks gold, they'll rise up through the index, so you will capture it. Um, and, you know, if you had to guess, and this is pure speculation, not how we make de- I make decisions, is um, <laughs> I'd guess a lot of money's going to go in that direction. Yeah, that I should think be so. Good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's probably something to consider as well. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll stop grilling you about life sciences now. <laughs> um, when we were talking before we started recording, um, we were talking about uh, how a lot of fund managers we speak to talk about uh, going and speaking to CEOs, looking them in the eye and uh, asking them questions and how that's uh, something that a lot of manage- hedge fund managers and institutions can do and Bryce and I would love to somehow be able to do it <laughs> as retail investors. Uh, you were saying that you have a little bit of a different approach to uh, to those CEO conversations. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I always find it amusing. It's a, it's an amazing marketing angle. So if you're trying to pitch somebody, why don't you like, invest in my fund and pay me fees to invest on your behalf? If you say, look, I've got amazing access and I spoke to the CEO, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can't, obviously can't do that. So I'll, it makes sense. It's an amazing marketing pitch, been tried and tested, uh, and it's great for raising money. But imagine like trying to like break down what that actually means. So what are you actually saying if you say you go and speak to the CEO? Like all, all information is public. You know, they're not actually allowed to tell you anything. You're not really allowed to ask. You're not allowed to use information that's, 
you know, so what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 are you saying like you're getting information that nobody else knows and you're getting an edge? Because it seems to be like that, that's the only way that you could get extra returns is if that's the case. And of course, that is the case. That is what they're saying. Yeah, I think, I think to, to t- play devil's advocate for them, given yeah. that they're not here to defend themselves, <laughs> I think they would say you can get a test, you can assess their like, character and like, are they a good manager? You know, are they going to run the business yeah. well? Are yeah. they going to make good decisions? Are they smart? Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So my take on that is, and we've given this a lot of thought, is you don't, that's not, that's not generally not useful information. It's useful information you want to assess them as a salesperson. Absolutely. And then sales is like the number one thing in business. You need to like motivate your employees. You need to like win contracts. It is very important to be able to, in a 20, 30 minute meeting, give a really good impression. Um, it's like, a, it's like probably number one CEO skill. Um, but they're going to get you into the wrong wrong stocks you know it, it means you're going to be you're going to be going for the best people at that um whereas we'd prefer to look at the data like what are their web traffic doing what's the revenue growth what are the users doing so everyone's focused on the management what are the customers doing you know it comes like the customer love thing like focus on that end and that's been so much more productive an example would be something like tesla where elon musk was pretty unlikable two years ago yeah, now his, his achievement is just so like profound that it's yeah. just pretty hard not to kind of respect the guy. But there was that moment where he was doing all that crazy stuff and he was tweeting and he was smoking and he was, <laughs> he was like tweeting about pedophiles in like Thailand or something. You know, he was just being so unlikable and horrible. Um, and a lot of people didn't invest on the back of that. But what was happening, you know, Tesla was doing great. You know, the customers were still buying the cars and pushing it forward. You know, so I think like that's by far the most important part and that's actually available to anybody you know web traffic there's a company called alexa not company there's a website called alexa which tracks stats so you can see websites rising and falling you can see google trends which is accurate Mm. um there's a company called similar web it gives you very good monthly data on websites you know that's available to all of us uh and i'd say that's far more useful than than speaking to the ceo Mm. So, Michael, before we move to the final three questions of, of our interview that we ask everyone, we are introducing a new segment this year called Fund Manager of the Year, which our community are going to be voting on based on these interviews, how much fun we've had, which I reckon we've had a pretty fun time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the questions that we want to add to this is uh, what is one stock that we should be keeping an eye on this year from your point of view? Oh, I probably should have prepared this. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't like giving people preparation. <laughs> uh, there's some interesting stuff going on in the life sciences at the moment. So I'll give you, I'll give you, do you want a long or a short answer? Or you Me- don't mind? Medium, medium. Medium. Okay, I'll try and keep it quick. So there's, uh, we do a lot of work on kind of like this idea of a blood des- test for cancer, so liquid biopsy. So we've always known since the 40s that tumor cells shed DNA. The problem was, let's say you take a sample of blood from someone and there's like a tiny little bit of stray DNA with a cancerous marker on it. Um, how do you find that? You have to sequence all of it. It's the, literally a, a needle in a haystack. Um, and think about it, it took them like 10 years or something to do one genome from multiple samples. Um, so think about how, how far the technology has come. Now the technology is there and you can do that. Um, but the issue with that stuff is that there's, it's kind of really complicated mathematically because you can't have false positives. You can't tell people they have cancer. Yeah, yeah. They don't. And then so the, the, there's like a false negative and a false positive. And the problem is with cancer, the way everyone kind of approaches it is you have to fight it. You know, you have to fight it. And like traditionally, that's generally been a bad idea because that means using experimental unproven methods that are often kind of overturned with time. So you look back at what people were doing 20, 30 years ago with surgery and it was barbaric. Um, so this idea of getting blood and just testing accurately there, that's something that's gonna, that is now fact. You know, the technology is there. The trial, the trial results are very good and there's multiple companies working on it. Um, but there's one company that I thought was really interesting and it was doing something similar 
testing for like DNA testing for melanoma. But the idea is instead of um, one of the challenges is melanoma, I'm by no means an expert, um, but I think it's pretty tough for the GPs to know what to do, you know, because they have to either like assess it, send you to a specialist. Um, maybe the specialist has to like cut a bit out, but people don't necessarily want to do that unless there's a very high chance it's there because nobody wants, you know, a knife in them. Um, what this company does is basically get a bit of sticky tape and then put that on, your, on the tumour, rip it off, and then test that for tumorous cells. And that's like obviously a gross simplification, but that's what they're doing. Uh, I think that's something that could really work. It just seems to make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And like all the kind of dermatologists in the US are swinging behind it. Okay. Uh, so I thought that was like a novel approach to, it just shows when you've got these new technologies developing, in this case, you know, DNA testing for cancer, how many different little businesses and ideas can be done. Yeah. So what was that company called? Uh, Dermtech, D-M-T-K. Nice. It's nice. run very hard, so don't rush out and buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been good for us, but... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, Michael, I, w we want to say thank you for coming on, first of all. I think this has been a great conversation and I've certainly, you know, learned some things, thinking about things differently and I'm sure our audience have as well. Um, if the Equity Mates community want to follow you, hear more about you, uh, where should they go? Uh, yeah, we've got a website, frazzascapitalpartners.com. We do a podcast, occasionally post things on YouTube. Um, yeah, nice. this has been fun. Nice. Thanks so much for having me on. That's all good. We'll, we'll have to get you back at some point. But before <laughs> we do that, we uh, do right. like to finish with the final three questions. So um, we'll get stuck into that. Uh, first one, um, do you have any books that you consider must read? And these can be investing or otherwise. Uh, yes, since you're asking about life sciences, so I imagine there's some interest. There's one called Billion Dollar Molecule, um, which is a fascinating take. It's just a story about, you know, the trials and tribulations to get one drug to market. But it's fascinating. It's like uh, Barbarians at the Gate, but for the life sciences. Oh, nice. Yeah, cool. You know, or like, uh, probably not Lies Poker. It doesn't have quite the same element of you know, gambling. <laughs> 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 Highly recommend it. Billion dollar molecule. Nice. nice. We'll check it out. Uh, second question. Um, in 60 seconds, uh, what's the best company you've ever seen? Wow. That's, um, that's 10 seconds. Again, I should have done, <laughs> done my homework on this one. Uh, I would say it's pretty hard to knock anything Elon Musk has done in terms of, I mean, that's a boring answer, I know. But you know, he landed a rocket backwards. Can you just like, yeah, reflect know, on that? Yeah, that is yeah, insane. Yeah. Like, shot it up and landed it backwards. Right. And then the electric vehicle thing, like everybody knew they made sense, but nobody knew how to get from A to B. So he had this like staged strategic approach, very long term. Um, you can, I don't think you can fault the guy yeah. and his impact on the world. Yeah, 100%. And then final question, if you think back to your younger self, buying that uh, diamond company uh, as your first mm. investment, uh, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, I would just say just buy tech sooner and just only do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool tech companies that everybody knows, like Netflix or Amazon, yeah, yeah. you know, just the obvious <laughs> stuff. Don't, don't go like, don't go searching for diamonds in the rough. Yeah, you know? yeah pun intended. Yeah, yeah. the best ones are actually in front of you. Nice. Yeah. Well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Inspiring. I'm sure a lot of our audience have taken uh, a lot of value from that conversation. So all the best with your fund. We're going to keep an, a close eye on it. If you're looking for uh, investors, hit us up. Uh, <laughs> we are hiring right now, actually. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you're, about Me get, arm. you're about to get flooded with uh, applications from the equity rates. Excellent. Yeah. But uh, very much appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. Really enjoyed that. Thanks, guys. And a reminder to the rest of the Equity Mates community, it uh, doesn't stop here. We do have another podcast, uh, the Get Started Investing podcast for all those beginner buffets and also the Comedian vs. Economist podcast where uh, 
Adam and Thomas break down the world of macroeconomics. So go and check that out. But Ren, as always, it's been uh, really fun and uh, looking forward to chatting next week. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 